0: The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my podcast. You know, HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average seventy thousand dollars a year. Just go to Bambi.com/slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. Well, on Thursday, we got the initial estimate for GDP growth in the second quarter. Now, a lot of people were looking for a big number. I think the consensus was 8.5% GDP, which under normal circumstances, right, would be a very big number. But given the fact that we're coming out of this gigantic hole, it doesn't really seem that big. And also you have to remember that when it comes to GDP numbers, they're always annualized. So people weren't looking for 8.5% growth in the quarter, it's annualized. So that's really about 2%, a little over 2% of growth during the second quarter. You just multiply it by four to get the bigger number. So that was the consensus. The actual number was 6.5%. So substantially less than what the street was expecting. And in fact, they even slightly revised the growth From the prior quarter down from 6.4 to 6.3 so bad news all around but of course what really stands out with the q2 gdp is not the actual 6.5 because that supposedly is the real rate of growth which is adjusted for inflation and in the gdp they have a deflator which deflates the gdp to get it to represent actual growth and not just rising prices. Because after all, if prices are going up, that doesn't actually signify that the economy is any bigger. It just means that it's more expensive. So we're supposedly focusing on real GDP, not nominal GDP. But the nominal gain was about 13%. That really puts in perspective Just how much inflation we have that we've got nominal GDP growing at 13%. The deflator was basically 6.4%. So almost half of the nominal rise in GDP was the result of inflation and not actual economic growth. But I think it's interesting if you compare the deflator to the CPI, because the CPI is another way that the government purports to measure inflation. And if you add up the inflation for the second quarter, just those months, and then annualize it, which is what they've done with the uh, deflator, there you get 9.35% inflation. So if they deflated the GDP using the CPI rather than the deflator, growth would have come in around 3.5% substantially lower than the 6.5% that was reported. But of course, I don't even think the CPI accurately captures all of the price increases that are taking place within the economy. I mean, it's possible if we more accurately measured inflation, in particular, as I mentioned on my last podcast, if we included how much rents were rising in the CPI, not just how much the government is pretending rents are rising with owner's equivalent rent, but the rents that tenants are actually paying as measured by the real rents, if we use that in the CPI and then we use that to deflate the GDP, my guess is that the economy actually contracted during the quarter. So despite all this fanfare about all this economic growth, all of this economic growth is in fact an illusion that is created by inflation. Inflation creates the illusion of economic growth, even as the economy is not growing. And in fact, the illusion itself is also pierced if you simply look at the breakdown of the components of the GDP, because all of the increase really came from personal consumption, spending, individuals spending money. there. The increase on the quarter was 11.8%, which actually exceeded the 11.4% that had been expected. So even though we got lower GDP overall, we got more consumer spending than what had been anticipated. If you look at private business investment, which is the most important part of the GDP, because that indicates the potential for real growth in the future because to the extent that we're going to have consumption in the future, we need production in the present in order to produce the goods and services that people are going to consume. And so we have to have private investment in order to expand that capacity. And gross private domestic investment actually fell by 3.5%, again, annualized on the quarter. But it was actually a subtraction So we had no legitimate economic growth at all. All we had was people spending money. And one of the reasons that they spent more money is because all the things that they were buying cost more. So it's rising prices, not a growing economy that is behind the gain in the GDP. Now, where did a lot of Americans get the money that they spent on higher priced items well a lot of the money came from the Federal Reserve the Federal Reserve printed the money and then the U.S. government distributed all that printed money to Americans in the form of stimulus checks and enhanced unemployment benefits so we printed a bunch of money and we spent it buying higher priced stuff and that is the reason that we had this big increase in GDP but this is not a sign of a strong economy it simply evidences a weak economy that is being camouflaged by inflation. But, you know, another significant aspect of all of this inflation is what it actually means for the national debt, the total national debt. Again, this is just the funded debt, the tip of a huge iceberg, because I'm not talking about all the unfunded obligations that the U.S. government has, but the 28 and a half trillion dollar National debt, if we have inflation that is running at even the six and a half percent that the government claims with the deflator, right? If that's the inflation rate, that in and of itself wipes out one and a half trillion dollars of debt, right? It's not officially defaulted on, but for all practical purposes, it's been repudiated by the government because when the government creates inflation, and the value of money goes down, that means the value of their debt goes down. That means when the U.S. government repays its creditors, the money that it borrowed, creditors are getting back money that has less purchasing power. That is, in effect, a stealth default. Creditors are getting back less in real terms than they owned which is one of the main reasons that the government is deliberately causing inflation because it has no other way to get out of this debt. I mean, it can't repay the debt. That's impossible. It doesn't have the integrity to legitimately default and admit that it can't pay. So it does a stealth default through inflation. And that's what's happening. But the problem is that the debt is growing so fast now that it's growing even faster than the amount that they're defaulting on, meaning that the debt-to-GDP ratio is still rising despite the fact that we're repudiating so much of the debt through inflation. Because if we have a lot of inflation that grows the nominal GDP, then that brings the debt-to-GDP number down. And right now, U.S. debt-to-GDP is about 130%. Well, one way to bring that down is if you can make the economy bigger in nominal terms because the debt stays the same. The debt doesn't change. So when you have inflation, the amount of debt stays the same, but the size of the economy is now larger because you're measuring it with cheaper dollars. So one way to reduce your debt to GDP is to have inflation make your GDP number bigger, and that's the denominator in the fraction. And so that brings down the ratio. But here's the problem. Our budget deficits right now are about $3.5 trillion a year. So even if we're repudiating 6.5% of the debt through inflation, the debt itself is growing by 15% a year. So we're still going deeper into debt, despite the fact that so much of it is being repudiated by inflation, that is how big this problem is. So in other words, if the US government really wants to use inflation to shrink the absolute amount of debt in relation to the economy, given how big the deficits are right now, we're going to need a whole lot more inflation. And you know what? That's exactly what we're going to get. We're going to get much more inflation than what we've already experienced. In fact, we're already getting more inflation than the government is admitting to. But even that number is going to get much bigger. We also got more evidence that inflation is creating problems for the economy with the pending home sales numbers. I talked about home sales again on the last podcast. When we got actual sales, these are the pending sales for the month of June. They were expecting a decline of 0.8. Instead, we got a decline that was more than twice as large, 1.9%. The index of pending home sales has now declined from 115 in the month of May to 112.8 in the month of June. This, of course, despite or maybe because of Rising home prices, the price of homes continues to go up, and that is part of the problem because higher priced homes are harder for Americans to afford. And again, this is why we are headed for a massive collapse in the home building and construction uh, industries. This has been a source of employment uh, during the, the pandemic or the reopening. We have had more construction jobs created, but the problem is, The houses that are being built based on the increased costs of both raw material and labor are too expensive for Americans to afford, even with rock-bottom interest rates. So what I think is going to have to happen is that new construction is going to have to come to a halt, and so will all the jobs that are associated with it, and more of the sales are going to be for existing homes, which in many parts of the country— including where I'm living in Connecticut, existing homes are still selling for well below the cost of constructing them. So rather than building a new home, uh, you have all these homes that are already on the market that are selling for a lot less than the cost to build them. And so that is what I think is going to happen. And that's also going to keep putting upward pressure on the existing homes because those are the homes that more and more people are going to be buying rather than the higher priced new homes that more immediately reflect all of the inflation that is driving up the cost of constructing them. When you're running a business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. You've got wrongful termination, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations, and HR manager's salaries ain't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created especially for small business owners. You can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from being your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. They'll customize your policies to fit your business, and they'll help you manage your employees day-to-day, and they're going to do it all for just 99 bucks a month. The best part, it's month-to-month, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. So go to Bambi.com slash gold right now and schedule a free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold. It's spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. We also got another weekly jobless claim, first time unemployment claims of 400,000. We were at 424,000 in the prior week. It was actually originally reported at 419,000, and they revised it up. The consensus was that we would go down to 390. We did go down, but we didn't break the 400. So when you're printing 400,000 new unemployment claims, when the economy is supposedly doing well, when we're supposedly in a recovery, these are high numbers that are more consistent with a, a weak economy than a strong one. But despite the fact that a lot of Americans don't have jobs, they continue to spend money because they're getting a lot of money from the government. A lot of Americans, of course, are spending money because they're not paying their rent, they're not paying the interest or the principal on their student loans. Now, apparently, some of the Americans who aren't paying their rent may have to start paying next month because the moratorium on evictions has not been extended. And so apparently starting uh, next week, Uh, landlords now have the ability to kick out tenants who aren't paying their rent. So to the extent that some Americans have to resume paying their rent, well, they may not have as much money uh, to, to spend on other things. And in fact, we did get the personal income and spending numbers that came out on Friday. These numbers came out stronger than had been expected because the consensus was for another decline in personal income of 0.7%, you know, we got a 2.2% decline in the prior month, which was actually an upward revision from the 2% that was originally reported. But instead of getting a decline, we actually had a slight increase in personal income of 0.1%. But the big number is in the personal spending, which had dropped by 0.1% in May, it was expected to rebound 0.6% in June, and instead, it shot up by a full 1%. So consumers were spending more money than people had anticipated. But again, where did they get the money? They didn't earn it because income was barely up. So they either got the money from one or two sources. Either they borrowed the money on their credit cards and they spent that, or They drew down their savings. A lot of Americans who got stimulus money in the past hadn't spent it all. That's why we saw a big uptick in the savings rate, because a lot of people were getting sent all this government money, but they were at home not spending it. And so the balances were just building up in their checking accounts. Well, now they're starting to spend that money now that the economy is reopening And so the savings rate is collapsing as Americans are now depleting that pool that the government filled up. But of course, none of that is sustainable unless the government is going to refill the pool with more stimulus money, which it's probably going to do. But of course, all of that means more inflation because the government is creating money, not goods and services. The economy is not producing the goods and services to give purchasing power to the money that the government is printing. And so the consequence is simply that prices go up, and we're going to continue to see that happening. The key is, when are the markets going to finally wake up to this reality? On Friday, we had the last trading day for the month of July. And if you look at a sector that was particularly weak, it was energy. Oil and gas stocks really got beat up in the month of July, despite the fact that the price of oil did not. Oil was actually up about a dollar fifty per barrel on the month. And in fact, if you look at where we closed on Friday, $73.95, just a nickel below $74, we've only had five other days all year where the price of oil has closed. Higher than this, and not much higher, because if you look at the highest close of the year, it's less than 1.5% above the close from Friday. So given the fact that oil is so strong, why were oil stocks so weak? And it's not like they've had such a big run off of their COVID lows. They haven't. Pretty much all of the major oil companies today are trading significantly below where they were prior to COVID. Even though the price of oil is higher today than it was prior to COVID and likely to go much higher uh, given the new reality of all the inflation that's being created, yet oil stocks are still among the cheapest stocks out there, paying among the highest dividend yields in the market. So given the strength in oil and the relatively low valuations of these oil stocks, why are they going down? Why did investors sell oil stocks when given all the fundamentals, they should be buying them? After all, you've got the S&P this week made a new all-time record high, right? The S&P moved higher than it was prior to COVID. Included in the S&P are some oil stocks, yet these oil stocks are weak, even though the overall market is strong. And the reason for all the pessimism In oil, I think is the same for all the pessimism on gold. You know, the price of gold was up about $40 an ounce during the month of July. That's about 2%. But gold stocks didn't go up. In fact, look at the GDXJ, which are the junior gold mining stocks. That index was down by 2% on the month, even though gold was up 2% on the month. Normally, you would expect- that the gold stocks, particularly these junior miners, would go up maybe twice, if not three times the amount that gold would go up. So if gold went up 2%, you would expect these stocks to be up 4%, maybe even 6%. Now, you might expect similar leverage on the way down, meaning had gold dropped by 2%, well, maybe the gold mining stocks, the juniors would drop by 4% or 6%, but gold didn't drop. Gold went up. Yet despite the fact gold went up, gold stocks went down. Why? Why are we seeing investors selling gold stocks? Why are investors selling oil stocks? It's because they still believe that the Federal Reserve has got inflation under control. That if it turns out that this inflation that we are experiencing is not transitory, and there's more and more evidence that it's not, I mean, more people on Wall Street now think that inflation is not transitory, but they also think that because it's not transitory, the Fed is going to be forced to acknowledge a mistake, which is something it never does, but that the Fed is going to have to fight this non-transitory inflation by raising interest rates, and that is supposedly going to crush the price of gold and the price of oil, especially if fighting inflation Actually, tips the economy into recession, uh, then we could really see a plunge in the price of oil. But also, I think the Fed fighting inflation and raising interest rates sooner than expected, tapering its asset purchase program sooner than expected, everybody believes that that is going to be bullish for the dollar. And a strong dollar is also going to be bearish for oil and bearish for gold. Except once again, the dollar was down. During the month of July, the dollar index closed the end of June at 92.44 and it closed July at 92.09. So, in reality, we're seeing rising oil prices, rising gold prices, and a weaker dollar. Yet, the markets don't believe these trends are going to continue. They believe these trends are going to reverse because they expect the Fed to not only fight inflation, but to win the fight. Well, where the markets have got it wrong is not only won't the Fed win the battle against inflation, but it's not even going to wage it because it is impossible. And as the markets eventually come to terms with this reality, then they're going to start discounting a totally different outcome because right now they're discounting the fantasy that inflation is going to be successfully fought off. When they start pricing in the reality that inflation is going to win, then you're going to start to see a completely different outcome in the market. You're going to see gold stocks going up. You're going to see oil stocks going up. And you're going to see a lot of these stocks that only thrive in periods of low inflation, these real high multiple stocks that everybody has been hiding out in. These are the stocks that have the most to lose. And speaking of stocks that have a lot to lose, I want to talk about the IPO of Robinhood. This was one of the more highly anticipated IPOs. After all, this really encapsulates the entire, you know, meme stock investing theme uh, where the public is just buying everything no regard to fundamentals, pure gambling. In fact, a lot of people have taken their stimulus money and Deposited directly to their Robinhood accounts, and of course, Robinhood was at ground zero for the GameStop short squeeze. In fact, a lot of people were upset at Robinhood when they halted the ability of people to buy a uh, GameStop or to leverage up uh, to buy GameStop. So, there was a lot of people focusing on this IPO. They supposedly have democratized investing, of course. Robinhood is not about investing at all. It's about speculating. It's about gambling. If anything, that's all they've democratized. And they're not helping the little people, right, rob the rich, right? That's the whole name of Robinhood is where, you know, you're taking from the rich and you're giving from the poor. Well, what Robinhood actually does is it helps the rich take from the poor because the people who are losing are the customers or the people who have accounts at Robinhood. Because they're not actually the customers. Those people are the product. The customers are a few hedge funds that are buying all the order flow so they can trade against all the Robin Hoods, right? So all the merry men who have got accounts at Robinhood Hood are losing a bunch of money. And the people who are making the money are the rich sheriffs who uh, own these hedge funds. The reason they're buying all these orders is because they're making a lot of money off them because the people that have Robinhood accounts, by and large, don't know what they're doing. Now, sure, some of them may have made some money, but they're going to give it all back. It's not like everybody who goes into a casino loses money right away. Of course not. I mean, there are people who win at casinos. They just don't win consistently. They don't win forever. They give it back, right? That's why the casinos are so opulent. That's why you look at, how grand these casinos are and how much money they spent building them, it's not because they're losing to their customers. The gamblers are the ones that are losing. The house is winning. And the house, when it comes to Robinhood, are the companies that are the real customers that are paying for all the order flow so that Robinhood's account holders can trade for free. But while they're trading for free, they are losing their money. And to the extent that they haven't lost it all yet, it's just a matter of time. Because if you look at the stocks that Robinhood's account holders are concentrated in, they own the most overvalued stocks in the market. They own the stocks that are likely to fall the most during the bear market, especially if the bear market is a result of inflation. And also, of course, not only is Robinhood generating revenue from stock trading, They generate a lot of revenue from cryptocurrency trading. In particular, more recently, Dogecoin is where I think some of the greatest revenue is coming from. The reality is, if you look at the market environment that Robinhood has recently been operating in, things could not get better, right? You have all these individual investors who haven't lost all their money yet, who are gambling like crazy, they're trading constantly. They're also chasing all these meme stocks and jumping into these cryptocurrencies. So you have all of this volume. Uh, So when it comes to Robinhood's business model, things probably couldn't get any better than they are right now, which is why they're going public, right? They're not going public because they have a small business that they want to expand. They're going public because they have a big business that's probably not going to get any bigger and all the insiders want to cash out which means all the people who are buying are just patsies enabling the insiders to get out. And ironically, a large percentage of the buyers are, in fact, the little guys who have accounts at Robinhood because they were allocated, I think, something like 25% of the IPO. Now, focusing on the IPO itself, the stock was priced at $38 a share which in and of itself means nothing until you think about the market cap of the company, which at that price was $32 billion. Think about the absurdity of Robinhood, that app being worth $32 billion because they're not even making money despite the best possible circumstances for the company where they probably have had more revenue than they're ever going to get Yet they still didn't make any money. So if they couldn't make any money during these ideal circumstances, how are they going to make money in the future when the circumstances will be less than ideal? They're probably going to end up having more competition. They may lose some of their real customers because there could be some more regulation on the hedge funds that are buying all the order flow. Their customers, of course, could get wiped out, right, if you're operating a casino and all the people who go to your casino are broke. Well, they're not coming back to the casino because they've lost all their money. So their customers are going to get wiped out. There's going to be more regulation. There's going to be more competition. I don't see any way this company is going to maintain a market cap anywhere close to $32 billion other than through massive inflation, which, of course, we're probably going to get. But then the real value of that $32 billion is, is going to collapse. But even with massive inflation, I still think they're going to struggle to keep that market cap. In fact, if you look at the way the IPO played out, it immediately crashed below its IPO price. In fact, on Friday, the stock traded as low as $33.25. The IPO was $38.00. That's about a 12.5% decline in the price of the stock the day following the IPO. And that ranks it as one of the worst IPOs ever. In fact, on its opening day, it may in fact have been the worst IPO ever for a major IPO. So complete disaster, breaking that syndicate bid. I mean, normally the investment banks do everything they can to try to at least hold the IPO price. And they're in there buying, but- Obviously, they couldn't do it. They were overwhelmed by the number of people trying to immediately get out of that stock. And I'm wondering how many of the people that have Robinhood accounts actually sold because to the extent that they want to get IPOs in the future, they are penalized if they don't hold on, I think, for at least 30 days. Uh, And then if they don't hold on, I think maybe they, they can't get another IPO for maybe another 90 days or something like that. So a lot of the Robinhood people, you know, they may be hodling their uh, Robinhood shares. And it's probably some of the bigger players that have rushed for the exits because they didn't get an immediate pop. See, normally the guys in the IPOs, they want that pop, right? They want to buy it and they want it immediately to close 20%, 30%, 50%, 100% above what they paid. But if they don't get that, if they don't get a bounce, well, they just want to cut and run because if the stock's not going to go up, well, it's got a long way to go down because who knows what the real value of this company is. People were only buying it because they expected a pop. They didn't get one. Now they want out. What's it actually worth based on its capacity to earn money or maybe pay a dividend? I think it's worth a fraction of its current price, and we might see that in the days ahead as this stock ultimately tries to find some type of bottom at some reasonable price. And finally, when it comes to stocks, so I want to talk a little bit about MicroStrategy. They reported earnings last week. I don't think anybody really cares uh, what MicroStrategy earns as a software company because the only thing that really matters to MicroStrategy is the price of Bitcoin because that's basically what the company is all about right now is Bitcoin. And of course, when Michael Saylor, was interviewed on CNBC, it was almost a 10-minute interview, so he had a lot of airtime. And I don't think any of that time was spent on MicroStrategy's earnings as a software company. The only thing that they talked about during the entire interview on CNBC was Bitcoin. And you know, every time I listen to Michael Saylor talking about Bitcoin, I mean, the rhetoric gets more and more insane to the degree to which he's willing to say a bunch of nonsense in order to tout Bitcoin and continuously pump up the price. So a couple of things that he said that I thought were particularly ridiculous in describing Bitcoin and what Bitcoin was like, he said Bitcoin was like fire. It was like steel. It was like electricity, meaning this is how revolutionary Bitcoin is, right? Because think about fire, right? Think about what type of advancement fire was in human history right because think about life without fire right so fire was very very important uh, in human history same thing with steel the invention of steel and electricity I mean what would our lives be like without electricity yet somehow bitcoin is just as important as fire and electricity even though I don't use bitcoin at all I mean I use fire I use electricity I don't use bitcoin for anything The only thing people use Bitcoin for is gambling. Meanwhile, there's 11,000 other cryptocurrencies that you can gamble with if you don't want to gamble with Bitcoin. So how is that anything like fire? I mean, it's not like I got 10,000 other things that compete with fire or that compete with electricity. I want electricity. I need electricity. Right. If I want a cryptocurrency, I don't need Bitcoin. But the reality is nobody even needs a cryptocurrency. But again, too, during this interview, Michael Saylor went back to comparing Bitcoin to real estate. Right? Where Bitcoin's got nothing to do with real estate. But according to Michael Saylor, Well, Bitcoin is digital property, and so he wants to say why digital property is superior to actual property, and the actual property he usually talks about now is not gold, it's real estate. So Bitcoin is better than real estate. In what way is Bitcoin better than real estate? I mean, you can't live in your Bitcoin. You can't vacation in your Bitcoin. You can't work in your Bitcoin. What can you do with your Bitcoin? Nothing. These two are not substitutes. Like I have a choice. Well, should I buy real estate or should I buy Bitcoin? They have nothing in common. Just because Bitcoin is digital property doesn't mean it has anything in common with actual property because you certainly can't use it in any way that you can use actual property. The one significant thing that he talked about with Bitcoin As opposed to property, it's like, well, it doesn't have taxes. Yes, if you own real estate, you're gonna pay taxes on it, no question about it. But if you own real estate, you can also rent it out and you can get rent that exceeds your taxes, or you can live in it yourself and you can derive that utility. You can live in your real estate instead of renting somebody else's. And so, yes, you're gonna pay taxes. But you're going to get all the benefit of living in the real estate. Yeah, there's no property tax when you own Bitcoin, but you get no value from owning Bitcoin. You don't derive any income out of it. You don't get any utility out of it. You just own it. Now, the craziest thing he said about it, though, is he said, hey, the beauty of Bitcoin is that you could take it with you when you die, right? Because, you know, a lot of people, there's an old expression, you can't take it with you. Well, as far as Michael Saylor is concerned, when it comes to Bitcoin, you can take it with you because you could take it to the grave. Well, first of all, taking it to the grave and taking it with you are not the same thing because the expression you can't take it with you refers to the afterlife, right? You're going to go to heaven if you believe in that. Well, you can't take any of your wealth with you to heaven, right? That's the whole idea behind the expression. You can't take it with you. So, you know, Spend your money while you're alive, because if you die with a big fortune, that fortune isn't going to help you in heaven. Uh, Maybe it's going to help your heirs, but it's not going to benefit you. But people have been taking assets to the grave. I mean, think about the old Egyptian pharaohs, you know, buried in these tombs. They've got all this gold buried down there with them, not like it does them any good in the afterlife, but at least they've got it in the grave with them. So to say that, oh, Bitcoin is great because you can be buried with it, well, hell, you can be buried with your gold too. What difference does that make? I mean, the fact of the matter is the reason that Michael Saylor thinks it's so great that you can die with your Bitcoin is because when you die with your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin is gone, right? Assuming that you haven't given anybody the password to your wallet or whatever, you die and the Bitcoin dies with you. Well, what's so great about that? I mean, I'd rather have assets that I'm going to leave to my children or to whatever charitable causes I want to donate them to or to other relatives rather than just have whatever I've saved just go to money heaven uh, at the same time that I go. But this shows you how delusional this guy is to think that this is some big selling point when it comes to Bitcoin that you can take it to the grave. Now, the reality is that is the ultimate in hodling, right? You have all this Bitcoin, you never sell it, So you never buy anything. So it doesn't matter how much they're worth on paper because you never actually utilize that value to buy anything, to consume anything. And then you die and it all disappears, right? So you hodl it during your life and then you hodl it in death. Apparently, that's what Michael Saylor is planning on doing. He's going to take all of his Bitcoin to the grave. Well, I don't know if the rest of the Bitcoin community was planning on hodling just that long. Maybe a lot of these people who are holding on to their Bitcoin do imagine that at some point in time, they're going to use these Bitcoin to actually buy stuff, to actually enjoy their wealth. They're probably not looking forward to dying with all their Bitcoin, having never sold any of it. And then I think the the final ridiculous aspect of this interview is that David Faber asked him about all of the leverage and all the money that he was borrowing to buy Bitcoin. And and, and David said, you know, I can understand if you really like Bitcoin using your cash flow, using your corporate earnings to buy Bitcoin, but I don't understand borrowing money to buy Bitcoin. Why would you do that? And Michael Saylor's answer was, well, you know, I can borrow at 1% or 1.5%, so why not? After all, what if 10 years ago, I could borrow money at 1.5% and buy Facebook, wouldn't that have been smart? Look at how much money I would have made had I done that. And therefore, since borrowing money 10 years ago to buy Facebook turned out to be a good gamble, well, that justifies borrowing money now to buy Bitcoin, which of course is complete nonsense. And David Faber, just let him get away with it, didn't challenge him at all on the absurdity of that statement. The fact that a gamble in the past may have paid off does not justify a completely different gamble in the present. And of course, when you're looking backwards at gambles that worked, you have the full benefit of hindsight. So yes, you can go back and say, hey, if I had borrowed a bunch of money to buy the best performing stocks, I would have made a lot of money. Well, of course, you know that's always the case. I mean, hey, if I had borrowed a lot of money, to buy the winning lottery ticket, well, hey, that would have been great, except you don't know that you have the winning lottery ticket until after they draw the winner. So you don't know in real time, 10 years ago, it would have been irresponsible for a corporation to have borrowed a bunch of money and just gambled on Facebook stock. Even though with the benefit of hindsight, the gamble would have paid off, you don't know at the point that you're making the gamble, that it's going to pay off, and it's not responsible for a corporate CEO to decide to lever up the company and gamble with it. Because what if the gamble doesn't work? What if the stock goes down? What if the company actually goes bankrupt if you bet wrong, which is exactly what I think is going to end up happening to MicroStrategy if Bitcoin crashes you know, Bitcoin becomes worthless or just goes down to 10,000 or 5,000, which would still be a pretty high price uh, for Bitcoin as far as I'm concerned. But that's probably a low enough price to bankrupt MicroStrategy, especially considering the fact that by the time that happens, MicroStrategy is likely to have even more Bitcoin on its balance sheet and to have taken on even more debt to buy it. So the idea that because it would have been a winning bet to have borrowed a bunch of money to gamble on stocks, that because that worked out, that gambling on cryptocurrency, which isn't even a stock, I mean, at least Facebook was an actual business that actually has earnings. So maybe you could justify borrowing to buy a business, but you're borrowing to buy a digital token that has no earnings whatsoever, that has no actual intrinsic value that can collapse at any moment. I mean, Bitcoin is the last thing that you would want to gamble on. I mean, maybe if you believe in it, fine, buy it. But to borrow money to buy it, especially since even if Saylor is right on where Bitcoin is going to go in the long run, how does he know where it's going to go in the short run? Bitcoin could crash to 5000 before it goes to 100,000. And if you've levered up, you may not survive that. You may be forced out. You may be forced into bankruptcy on the decline, even if you end up being right ultimately. So there is no justification for what Sailor is doing other than the fact that I think he's desperate to try to prop up the price. That's why he uses every opportunity he can to tout Bitcoin, to talk about all this nonsense about why it's so great and why you could take it with you and you could take it to the grave and why he puts all the money that he can get his hands on in Bitcoin is because he's desperate to prop up the price. And I think he knows without continued buying from MicroStrategy and without all of his constant touting, the price might already be a lot lower than it is now.